God, I thank you. I thank you for your, your, your presence and your power. I thank you for your word that transforms lives. Lord, I know that, uh, that in this world, it's, it's times of turmoil. As we studied this morning in our men's study, that uh, these judgments are going to come about in the future that are horrible. We think it's bad now. It's going to get a lot worse. That should move us, God, to share your word even that much more. But tonight we want to pause this midweek. We want to reflect on your goodness, your greatness. That, Lord Jesus, you are above all. You are so high and mighty, worthy to be praised. But yet, you're so near to our heart. We thank you that we can put our faith and trust in you in these days. Lead us, Holy Spirit, in our our time of worship and study. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah In the presence of my enemies I raise a hallelujah Louder than the unbelief I raise a hallelujah Bye. 
absolutely amazing, the fact that you can bring us together midweek so we can pause, so we can continue to just refocus on you and lean on you, God, because our job is to abide in you, God. It's to rely on you for everything, just to to lead us, God, and to focus our lives and to focus our, our minds and our thoughts and just teach us, God, and just open up our hearts tonight and be with us as we just listen and listen to the words that Pastor Kerry just preaches out of the Bible, God. Thank you. Thank you for everything. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, find your way to Hebrews chapter 9 as we continue our journey through God's Word and, and study. One of the other things that uh, I want to bring to your attention, if, if maybe it slipped your mind or you weren't aware of it, um, last Sunday they started a grief share, which is a grief support group um, that was amazing. There was uh, 15 people that showed up. There's room for, for plenty more. And so if you go, oh, you know, I wanted to be there, but I forgot about it. Um, you, it's okay to, to join up this Sunday, and so they're meeting at 1 o'clock. And it's a 13-week uh, movement through, through study and, and through encouragement. So we want to um, encourage you to get plugged in with that. Tonight we're going to take a look at Hebrews chapter 9. And, and starting off, I want to ask a question. How does ritual hinder worship? Think about it. How does ritual hinder worship? When we think about the idea of ritual, and we can substitute this idea even in high church called liturgy, uh, ritual is, is what we do out of rote. It is what we practice, and it can even be a practice of worship, but it could hinder worship when ritual keeps us outside of the presence of God. When, when your liturgy or your ritual keeps you outside of the presence of God, it'll hinder your worship within that. When people worship the ritual of worship more than they worship God, is that a problem? Absolutely it is. When they worship the concept of, of, of what it is that, that they're doing and, and they're worshiping the worship more than they're worshiping God, then worship can become an idol, can it not? Can ritual become an idol? Can religion become an idol? Absolutely. These are all things that, that man can develop and even God can give, but what ends up happening is the ritual or the style or the liturgy of worship can actually become bondage and keep you from entering into the presence of God as we're going to unpack tonight a little bit with these people that are here. So often people are so caught up in spiritual bondage and they don't even know it. Can Christians be caught up in spiritual bondage? Absolutely they can. Yeah, anything that... that puts you into a, a, a bind, is, in a sense, bondage within that. When ritual becomes so rote, I have to do it this way. Why? Because I've always done it this way. Why do you do that? Well, because this is what we've done all the time. 
Or there was a video, and I didn't show it tonight, but if you remember the old guy that was sitting on the bench from years ago, and, and he was banging rocks together, and he says, that's the way we ought to do it, and I like it that way. Do you remember that guy? When we look at the idea of, of, of worship, we can worship, worship more than we worship God, and then worship that becomes rote, becoming meaning, meaningless, creates an empty form of religion. I had an email from a guy today that wanted to check out a church that he was looking to go to, and he said, Pastor Kerry, can you check out this church I want to attend? And I said, okay, I will. And so I went online and I checked it out, and I said, probably not a good church to go to. And there was a number of reasons why, but one of the, one of the reasons why was because the theology was, was a bit off, a long way off. But it is a traditional denomination that's been around for a really long time that repackaged itself with a modern name, but the theology is still off. Because that particular denomination is worshiping the concept of worship, more than they are worshiping God within that. And so they're not staying true to the Word of God. Paul warns Timothy of evil men in the church that will appear to be religious but really aren't. Second Timothy 3.5 says this, Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. When we hold to a form of godliness or a ritual, or an ideology by name, but we deny the power of God, then it puts us in bondage and it leads people astray. And these people, as Paul would say, are, are religious peddlers. And their whole idea is to trap the simple-minded people. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3.7, these people are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of truth. Why? Because they're missing it by the 18-inch rule. Do you remember that? 18 inches. It's the distance between your head and your heart. And there's a lot of, of, of Bible scholars that I would say that are so scholarly and they're so unspiritual because they have it in their head. In, in a, a church that I was at in Southern California, there was a, a seminary that was in a... It was a non-denominational seminary. It was a very popular seminary. And, and it was very good, but it has some professors in there that they, they could tell you everything that's in the Bible, but they didn't believe it. it. It was just a form of godliness. And so this worship of the ritual can be there. The other thing that I think that is a hindrance is what I would call worship bias. A worship bias is when people say that there's only one way to worship. There's only one place to worship. There's only one style to worship. That's a worship bias. Can that be a hindrance to worship? Absolutely it can. When we say that there's only one way, we've got to follow that way. We think about the illustration of the Samaritan woman. When Jesus went to Samaria, why did he go to Samaria? To evangelize this one woman. Midday, she comes out, has a conversation with, the, with me. In fact, in John 4, 19-24, we can read about it. It says this, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, 
And you people say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming, neither in this mountain nor Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Your worship, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is of the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in what? Spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be worshipers. God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We are a blessed church that lives in a blessed community. One of the blessings is the fact that on Good Friday, we will have another Good Friday celebration. Right now, I think there's anywhere between five to seven different churches that are going to be gathering at Scappoose High School. To do what? To worship. And we're going to have, we're going to have non-denominational there. We're going to have Baptists there. We're going to have... have um, a Hispanic church that's there that it's going to be it's going to be translated in English and Spanish and and if you've been to it it is amazing. Why? Because we are worshiping in spirit and in truth, and we are not emphasizing our denominational differences. Now, you know, it's okay for people to be able to, you know, if if they're going to Foursquare, then they can worship in in a more charismatic style. If they're if they're worshiping at a Baptist church, that's fine too. And in all of these, in a Hispanic church, they can they can worship as long as they're worshiping in spirit and in truth, and not worshiping the worship by which they are trying to achieve worship. The challenge is we get into our own little sandboxes. And in our sandbox, we want to play in our sandbox, and we think our sandbox is the best sandbox. The problem with every sandbox is this. Cats come along. <laughs> and they're going to leave you a little almond roca now and then. The reality is this. God calls us to worship in spirit and in truth. And I would say this. Empty religion will not meet man's deepest needs. I grew up in a Lutheran church, eight years in a Lutheran school, memorizing the Bible in the King James Version, which really screwed me up, because now it's all these, thous, and those, and thuses. And, and I can tell you this, I, I wasn't saved. I knew the Apostles' Creed was not saved. Form of religion for me. But it wasn't worship within that. Now, is that to say that Lutherans can't be saved? Yeah, you can be saved. But it wasn't, I wasn't worshiping in spirit and in truth. So we've got to be careful not to overemphasize denominational differences. We keep the truth centered. And as we're studying on Sundays, we, we are studying about the truth. This coming Sunday, we're going to be taking a look at the spirit of the truth within that and focusing on that. Man's deepest need is the ability to connect with God, is it not? That's man's deepest need. Man's deepest need is not to have a membership at a local church. Man's deepest need is to have a membership or a, a relationship with God, not a membership in a denomination. God who's living and eternal. A church didn't die on the cross for you. Jesus did. And we need to understand that as we read through this passage in Hebrews, the writer's trying to convey to Jewish Christians 
who were in danger of going back to ritual worship, thinking that the ritual worship is going to be what saves them. Because it was easier. Persecution had come. And they were abandoning the, the religion. And, and I can tell you this. When religion creates God in a box, it's much easier to go visit that God in that box and then leave the God in the box and go do whatever you're going to do. But when you're in a relationship with Yahweh God, worshiping Him in spirit and truth, He's with you how often? All the time. And there's a danger in, in doing that because when you leave the truth and you leave the true worship of God and you go back to ritual because you worship the ritual, you're actually settling for second best. And so as he continues the argument here in, in Hebrews chapter 9 all the way through 10, 18, he's really going to talk about the superiority and, of, of Jesus in the supernatural sanctuary. The place where, where worship really takes place, I can tell you this, is not the God in the box of Warren Community Fellowship. Nor is it the God in the box at the temple. Nor is it God in the box at the tabernacle or whatever box you want to put God into. Real worship takes place in the throne room of heaven before the throne of God. And there is a way that we can worship there now, even though we're stuck on this rock. Right? Yes. Through Jesus. So let's dive right into it. Verses 1 through 10, as we take a look at, at what would be a, a shadow of the supernatural sanctuary, it says this. Hebrews 9.1 says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the, and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar and incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which the golden jar holding the manna in Aaron's rod, which budded in the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second only, the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood from which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance." The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol, note that, symbol, for the present time, according both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. And since they relate only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. So, as the writer is writing, one of the things is he's, he's going to point out is, is how the earthly tabernacle or the earthly worship place was part of an old covenant system. And the old covenant system was a very valuable system. Who gave the, the design for the tabernacle? God did. Now, we, we read through some things. I want to show you some pictures because we talk about tabernacle. Tabernacle is basically a tent. It was the mobile tent that was designed 
by God that Israel would use in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt and they would have that place of worship. God said, I want to be there with you. And so everything that you see on the screen was mobile. The idea was that, all, that the Levites would take it down and they had the rods and they had the gates and they had all the different things that were all part of it. And you can see that there was a curtain on the outside and there was an outer veil that opened up into the holy place. And in there would be the table of showbread, the menorah, the altar incense, and then a second veil. And we would have separating the holy of holies from the holy place with the ark in that. And there was different layers. And, and if you remember in the beginning when we started many years ago in Journey Through By, we walked through all of these elements that are there. And so this whole design was to be a model on earth of the tabernacle that is in heaven. The word tabernacle means dwelling place. And so when God tabernacles, he dwells with. God designed and desires to have a relationship with mankind. And so he creates these, this tabernacle. Why? So that they would have a place to, to, to worship? No. So that they'd have a place to worship at. Not a place to worship, but a place to worship at. And the place to worship at would teach them about God. The building itself was designed to be able to reveal Jesus within this. And we can see all the elements that are in there. The outer court, the lampstand, the showbread, altar of incense, the menorah, all of these different things. We think about the showbread. How does the showbread teach about Jesus? Well, on the table, there would be showbread or unleavened bread, 12 loaves, one for each tribe. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 8 says this. Every Sabbath day he shall set in an order before the Lord continually. It's an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. What does bread mean to a person? Provision. Life. You need bread. We think about this. And so there would be this table that was set up with the showbread that was in there. There would be a, a, a curtain. There would be the menorah that would be within in this place. The menorah would be the lampstand. The light. Now, I want you to think about a couple of verses that John would speak of, about Jesus being the bread, and he would also be the light of the world. By the way, when you saw on the inside of the tabernacle, did you see any chairs? Pay attention to detail. It's important. There was a curtain that separated the room between the holy place and the holy of holies. Can you remember what happened when Jesus died to the temple veil that separated the holy place and the holy of holies? What happened to it? It tore. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one. And behold, the veil of the temple tore into, from bottom to top or top to bottom? Top to bottom and the earth shook. Why? Why from top to bottom? Because God removed the separation. Now, as we walk through this tabernacle, which would eventually become a temple within this, we're going to see a number of different things. In the Holy of Holies, what was there? You guys know what it is. The what? The Ark of the Covenant. 
And it was, a, it was a box of acacia wood that was wrapped in gold with two cherubim over the top. Inside that box was the Ten Commandments, a golden jar of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. Why? Because it would remind them of the wilderness wandering that was there in that place. And on top of the box was what was called the mercy seat. It was the place where the priest, the high priest, once a year would come and pour the blood of the atonement and the sacrifice on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of mankind. Exodus 25:22 says this, where God says this, note, there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of testimony, I will speak to you about all that I give you in the commandments for the sons of Israel. So God had established this place to worship, but not, not a place to be worshipped itself. Now, in Israel's history, when they would finally build the temple, would the temple be a place to go to worship, or would the temple be a place that was worshipped? It would be a place that was worshipped. Satan is going to play on that because Israel is so motivated to rebuild that. It's going to be a motivation that, that, that he's going to use to trap Israel into setting up a place for the Antichrist. Because they're still looking for that place to worship. And they worship the mountain. They worship the temple and all of these things. Where God says, it's a place I want to meet with you. And so the ritual, what started out to be a display to declare who God is, who Jesus is, that Jesus is the light of the world, that Jesus is the bread of life, as John would say, and that at the altar of incense, that was the place where the high priest would go and offer up incense for the prayers of the saints, and he would pray. Once a year he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would take the sacrifices we're going to read in a bit and, and put it on the mercy seat to cover or atone for the sins of Israel, and they would look for the ark. Do you know where the ark is today? People are like, nope. They don't know. Well, we know that, and most people believe that the ark disappeared from Israel somewhere around the Chaldean invasion in 587 B.C. The ark was not part of the, the, the temple itself. But if you ask Indiana Jones, he'll tell you it's in a warehouse somewhere. There's a, um, there's, a, there's a really good documentary that uh, Bob Cornuke has put together in search of the ark. And I, and I just watched it again. It, it's, it's fascinating to me. Um, where they're pretty sure, at least one of the thoughts, is um, that the ark is actually in a church in Ethiopia that is there. And, and Bob Cornuke, um, they filmed him and he went and he talked to this, this Ethiopian priest that is there that his job is to guard the ark that is there and he only sees it he's the only one that can go in and he dedicates his life to it. is it there yeah it could be is it underneath the temple mount yeah it could be does it matter no why do you think the ark's not here because god doesn't want people to worship it it would become an idol the same thing as this bronze serpent become an idol. People in search of relics. Why? 
because they become objects of worship. When we go to Israel in September, we'll go to, um, we'll go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, full of icons. And, that, and people are worshiping those things, thinking that they're worshiping God. But I can tell you this, whether you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or you go to Golgotha, you better be worshiping Jesus within that. And that's just a place to meet. My favorite place to go is Golgotha. My second favorite place to go is the, is the Garden of Gethsemane. And to sit among the olive trees. And those of you gone to Israel with us, when we sat in the olive grove that is there, and we sit on the bench and we worship. To me, it's like Jesus walked around. Jesus prayed somewhere around on this side of this hill. If we walk down across the road, we can go to this place called the Church of All Nations. And we go into that church. and There's great murals and things on there. But that doesn't do it for me. We go to Nazareth. And there's a, there's a church that's there. It has all of these, I think it's 13 different stations. And I had to get out of there. Because of the icons and the idolatry and all of the things that are all part of it. So in Nazareth, my favorite place to go was up on the hill, supposedly where they ran Jesus around uh, up on the mountainside. But when we go to the Sea of Galilee and we go to the Mount of Beatitudes, we can sit on the hillside and we can overlook Tiberias and and that, that sea that is there. When you see these things, Jesus walked in nature with his disciples and taught them. Man came along and built buildings to be able to do that. Now, is it okay to have a building to get out of the rain? Sure. But don't worship the building. And don't worship the icons. And the tabernacle was built according to the pattern that Moses had given. And again, you can read about it in Exodus 25, 40, where God told him, build it the way I tell you to build it. And within that. So you've got to ask the question then, why would God be so detailed in all of these things if he didn't want them to worship these things? Because they were to be a shadow. How can you explain something to a temporal person that is eternal? Only with images and, and pictures and shadows and, and these things. You've got to bring it real. So what God do, did was he brought heaven to earth and made it tangible. On display. We can't, at this time, go into God's throne room and physically see it. So God tabernacled with man within these buildings. It was a temporary provision in the tabernacle for Israel to meet with God until when? When they would come into the land. And then they would build that. But even in the building of the building, did God really want the temple? No. He really didn't. He allowed it. But he really didn't. He told David, what, are you going to build me a house? Like I could live in a house. Really? But we need a place to meet with God. We just have to be careful in how we handle it that the place that we meet with God doesn't draw us away from God within this. And Israel would struggle. And, and so we think about how Israel had, had been in slavery for 430 years. Seventy people went in, untold amount come out. How is God going to teach himself about himself 
to these people. And he uses the tabernacle to do that. And eventually, as I said, it would be the temple. And he says, here's a building. The problem is God gives us a, a, a desire and then we get involved with it and we've got to start decorating it. <laughs> That's dangerous. Um, and again, as I said, the, the tabernacle and the temple, the implements that are in it, they all tell us about our sin and the need for a Savior. Inside the holy place and the holy of holies, it tells us all about Jesus. That outer court, that inner court, the ability to come. One of the things that the tabernacle and the temple both tell us is that God is holy and man is a sinner. God is holy and man is a sinner. That there's a separation. And when we come to those places, for the Jews especially, when they come to those places, they would have to make sacrifice before they could approach God. Why? Because you're a sinner. And so it was to teach us about our sin. And you think about, even like on Passover, the amount of blood that would flow from the Temple Mount. Every Passover, you have to, your, your, your family's got to bring a lamb. And, the, and, and we look at it, and it's all pristine in our eyes, and we think about that, but they had slaughter stations all around the outer court. And the slaughter stations, and, and the priest would have to slaughter those animals, and it was bloody, extremely bloody. Why? Because the wage of sin is death. And so within this, the tabernacle rules and the priests were all set aside to teach us about the holiness of God within that. And that, that the sinner couldn't approach him. The, the light, the menorah, tells us, as I said earlier, John eight twelve, that Jesus is the light of the world, the bread. John 6.35, Jesus is the bread. And Jesus would take these same elements that they were looking at in a building, and he says, I am the light. Talking about the menorah. I am the bread. When we think about communion, it's the same symbols that we see, is it not? Jesus says, take this bread, represents my what? Body, given for you, and as often as you do eat this, Remember me. Could we be in trouble if we start worshiping the act of communion? Absolutely we can. When we elevate and, and that act of communion, we start saying that the bread, things like the bread actually becomes the body of Jesus. And the cup actually becomes the blood of Jesus. Is that, is that adding to something that God never intended? Absolutely. So whether it's, it's transubstantiation or consubstantiation, as some denominations would hold to, they are just symbols to teach us about Jesus. The problem with the, the recipients of this letter and the problem with us many times is we will take something that God uses as an object lesson and we becomes, it becomes an artifact of worship. And that's dangerous within that. But under the ministry of the high, high priest, there's something that's even more important. The ministry of the high priest, he could only go into the Holy of Holies how many times a year? Once. The text tells us he first had to offer sacrifice for himself before he could go in and offer sacrifice for anybody else. It tells us that it was extremely holy. Only one guy could get in one time out of the year. And that gives us this picture of what is true and what would be future 
for the Jews in the ministry of Jesus. There is only one person that ever could enter into the presence of the throne room of God under his own merit. And his name is what? Jesus. And so it's meant to teach us about Jesus. And these these Jewish Christians would have known that. And so that's why the writer is reminding them of this. That Jesus, he entered into the supernatural sanctuary, having paid the price for our sins. Hebrews 10.4, and we'll read it a little bit later, but I want to jump ahead. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says this. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifice which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had conscious of sin. But in those sacrifices... There is a reminder of sins year by year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So what is he saying? He's saying this. If the sacrifice at the tabernacle or the temple was adequate, how often would they have to do it? Once. But they had to do it continually. Why? Because it was only a covering of sin, and their sin remained, and they were conscious of their sin. So all it did was remind them that, there was a, that death was required as a result of, of sin. And it was necessary for them to do it continually. So whenever you would sin, you would have to go get your sacrifice for whatever sin you was, based on the law, right? Go get a couple turtle doves. Go get a lamb. Go get, you know, whatever it is, your grain offering or, or these different offerings. Go get them and bring them down. Why? Because I'm a sinner. How often will you have to do that? A lot. But the writer's argument is, if it was adequate, you'd only have to do it once, wouldn't you? Only do it once. But it wasn't. And so within this, we've got to understand that, that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Only the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus did what the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do. And God had given a better sacrifice as his high priest would go in. And as we talked about last week, if the high priest messed up on his own sacrifice, would it go well for him when he got into the Holy of Holies? Nope. You're done. Come on out. Within this. Now, some of you might say, well, if God really wants a relationship with man, If God really wants a relationship with man, why doesn't he just make the door wide open? That you can just come on in, as you are. Come on in. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through a sacrifice. You don't have to do all these other things. Just come on in. If God really wanted a relationship with man. Well, God does. But God is also just, and he has to judge sin Because the first covenant that man had with Adam was broken by Adam. And God said, you broke the covenant, you rebelled against me, sin came into the world, and therefore death came in. But I promise that I'm going to provide a solution to your sin. God wants us to understand that sin separates us from God. 
We have to deal with our sin issue. We have to be able to confess that sin. And God is faithful and just to forgive us of how many sins? All. But the first thing that we have to do is come to Him with a broken heart and confess that sin. And acknowledge that to remove that separation. It had to be dealt with because it's, it's rebellion against God. Now, you've got to understand God's grace. God says, I know you're a sinner. And I know that you cannot pay for your own sin. You can't atone for your sin. You can kill as many bulls and goats and all of these things that you want. It'll never be enough. So I'm going to provide for you the ability once and for all for those sins to be forgiven. So you don't have to keep going and bring in an animal and sacrifice. I'm going to do that for you. A perfect man brought sin into the world and only a perfect man would be pure enough to sacrifice his life to pay for that penalty of that sin. How many times can you die for your sin? You can't. So the only result is eternity away from God. So God set up the system in the Old Covenant to teach us all about our sin so that we would be ready for the Savior. He gave us a shadow of things in heaven and judgment and the law so that we would embrace that which was real and that which was authentic within this. And so the Old Testament was a temporary provision where the New Testament is the solution with that. The best thing that religion can do is teach you about the brokenness of yourself and the need for that Savior to know that He is there. So what, did God, what does the writer do? He says, I'm going I'm to teach you something better about the sacrifice. If you take a look at chapter 9, verses 11 to 18, He gives to us a superior and sufficient sacrifice. It says this, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things, notice, but when Christ appeared, that old's done, appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been uh, defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse you of, conscious, uh, of your conscience from dead works and serving the living God? For this reason... He's the mediator of a new covenant. So that, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were continued under the first covenant, those that have been called many receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must be a necessity of a death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives." Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. 
For when every commandment had been spoken of by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the cows and the goats and water and, scar- and scarlet wool and hyssop, sprinkled both on the book itself or the scroll itself, and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry of the blood. According to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with the blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So as we look at this next section, what he's now going to compare is the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Why is the new covenant superior? Well, the first point that he makes is Jesus is a superior high priest. Why? Because, as I said earlier, the high priest had to offer a sacrifice for himself. But Jesus was already able to go right into the throne room of God. There was no sacrifice necessary for him. No other high priest on earth ever accomplished what Jesus did. No one. No one was ever good enough. No high priest could ever have access to the throne of God. What gave Jesus that access to come as our high priest? The cross. The shedding of his blood on the cross. His perfect blood. His perfect life. Gave us access. Do you realize that that Jesus is the doorway into the throne room of God? Where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the what? Life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Temple veil torn. He has full access. Because at the cross, your sins are paid for. And Jesus wanted to be able to give us access, but not just access, but presence. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he took his position at the right hand of the Father. He's there. The high priest could only go in, pour out the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and then he'd have to leave. Whereas Jesus is a constant presence advocating. The high priest would advocate for the people with the blood of bulls and goats and the heifer and do that and he would advocate on their behalf but only once a year for a short period of time and then he'd have to come back and do it again. Jesus is constantly present at the right hand of the Father. And within that, we have a permanent, continual cleansing. Why is it that the Jews would always have to bring their sacrifice? Because they would sin again and their conscience would make them feel guilty. So they'd have to go offer a sacrifice again. Is that true of the believer today? No. Paul says in Romans 8.1, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he paid for your sin. In fact, spiritually, you are seated with Christ. You are in the heavens already. Your body just hasn't caught up to that reality. There's no more sacrifice. You say, well, I feel guilty over my sin. Well, it's not because God's calling you guilty. God doesn't condemn you. Your sins have been paid for at the cross. Well, if God's not condemning me, then who is? Satan, who's the accuser of the brethren. And myself. Because I'm not fully embracing the forgiveness that God has for me. I'm not fully embracing... In fact, what in essence you're saying is, 
I don't know that, Jesus, your sacrifice was enough for me. Which is the problem that these Jewish Christians had. They were going back to ritual because they didn't believe that sacrifice was enough by Jesus. And they're going back to the ritual and tradition of what they knew in their head. But for whatever reason, they were not believing it in their heart that Jesus' death was enough. We think about these bulls and these goats within this. The, the, the bull that was sacrificed and the goats, plural. Why goats, plural? You ever heard of scapegoat? It's actually a biblical term. Leviticus chapter 16, one, or 7 through 11 says this. And he'll take two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Aaron shall offer the goat on, on which the lot for the Lord fell, make it an offering. But for the goat on which the lot the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. And then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin of the offering for himself, make atonement for himself and for his household, and he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. And then later on in, in uh, verse 15, it says, And then he shall slaughter the goat for the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, in front of the mercy seat. So what would happen? Well, they bring, they bring the bull out. Aaron would go, okay, now I need to be purified. So he killed the bull and that would be his sacrifice. But then you have these two goats. Now, don't you wish it was easy enough to be able to get rid of your sin that way? Hey, I sin. What are we going to do? Okay, the nation sin. For the nation. Bring out two goats for the United States. And one goat's going to be sacrificed and for the sins of the people. And then the priest is going to lay hands on the other goat and run it out into the wilderness. Why? Because it is a shadow or a picture of those sins being taken away. So there was death and removal. You follow? Death pays the penalty for the sin. And the scapegoat fleeing is the removal of that sin. Can a dead goat pay the penalty for all the people? No. And can you actually transfer your sin onto a goat and let it run away and actually have it work? No. It's a symbol to teach us that with sin, death is required and there has to be a blood sacrifice so that God can take away the sins. How far does God cast your sins? As far as what? East is from the west, and he remembers them no more. Does that mean that God's dumb? No. It is a choice that when he forgives you of your sin, they are never held to your account any longer within that. And that is a reason why you should stay in this relationship. If you were a Jewish Christian reading this and you're going, why would I want to go back to ritual? And the bloodiness that was part of that. Why would I want to go back to this standard and all of the? Why would you want to go back to that? Especially when it doesn't work. Because 
you've lost your faith in God. You've lost your sight. You're loving the ritual more than you are the relationship. There's some really good things that are provided with Jesus' sacrifice. And I think probably one of, the, one of the first things that comes to mind is a pure conscience. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 21-22, it says this, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are in His sight. God forgives us and gives us this pure heart. Now, these people that they were running into, they'd been listening to false teachers. The false teachers that were telling them, you're not good enough. That God can't forgive you of that sin. Have you ever done something so bad and you go, God will never forgive me of that sin? Is that God speaking or is that the liar speaking? The liar speaking. Because Jesus paid the price for all of our sins and it was enough. So when, so when we go back to this idea that I need to do something to condone for my, or to uh, pay for my sin, we're listening to a liar. You, couldn't, you, you can't work your way in. You can't sacrifice enough to do it. Forgiveness is a free gift of grace and mercy. And it purifies our heart. So you just, the next time Satan wants to remind you what a dirty, rotten sinner you are, remind him of the cross. And say, Jesus paid for that. Yeah, but you're guilty. Yeah, but he took my guilt. And he took my shame. And he took my sorrow. And he sees me pure, even right now. Yeah, but you just sinned. Yep. But if I confess my sin, then the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse me of all of my sin within that. A second blessing is an internal inher- eternal inheritance. Full privilege, privilege as a child of God. Right now you have full access. Why? Jesus paid the price for your sin. There is no veil. There is no sacrifice necessary. There is no priest on earth that has to stand between you and God. Why? Because your high priest is seated at the right hand of the Father. In heaven. A third element, eternal life. Life eternal is knowing God. Some people say, well, life begins when you die. No, life begins when you know God. And the only difference is, is where you're at geographically. We're stuck here on this rock in a body that's dying. But at the, at the point in time that you accept the forgiveness, you're living eternally. And when, and when you shed this body, you're just changing addresses. Which is a blessing within that. And the fourth blessing is this. Eternal perfection. So, well, what do you mean? Eternal perfection that begins with eternal life means that you will never be judged for your sin. Ever. When does that begin? The moment you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You'll never be judged for your sin. Why? Because He paid for it. It's not like you're on this earth and then you've got to go stand before God and, and explain all your sin and pay for your sin when you get to heaven. No. Done. This eternal perfection removes you from any danger of judgment. 
Now, is there a place when God's going to hold us accountable for our actions? Yeah. But it's not for the kind of judgment that you think. It is a reward. God's going to say, hey, Carrie, let's take a look at your life. All right. And at the Bema Seat Judgment or the reward seat, God's going to, let's take a look at your life and let's see what your life is. We're going to throw it into the fire. And everything that you did with, with ulterior motives, it was wrong, and all these things burned up, wood, hay, or stubble. And then what will come out is, is gold, silver, and those things. God will say, there's your rewards. And the blessing, as we studied even on Wednesday morning, I'm going to look at it and go, yeah, now what do I do with it? God, you're so awesome, I'm going to give this all back to you. Why? Because I'm blessed. Lastly, he goes in and, and talks about this new covenant that, that gives us Jesus as a better mediator. Guaranteed by the blood of Jesus, no longer to be judged. This new covenant that is, is brought into effect. The old covenant was only good as long as there was somebody alive or somebody would die. So it was, it was there. So when we die to ourselves, when we die under that old covenant, we're dead. And then we enter into that new covenant, and it's a transition within that. The problem is with these Jewish believers is they wanted to go back to that old covenant, and they were empowering that old covenant and reestablishing that old covenant under, under their, their trust. But they've been forgiven. They've been cleansed. In fact, when we take a look at this, it is this idea that we've been cleansed completely. In verses 18 to 22, it talks about a sprinkling. That comes back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. And again, as I said, this is a pretty bloody concept. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 22, it says, You shall take some hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood on the basin, the lintel and the two doorposts, and none of you should go back on the outside of the doorpost. It'll be, it'll be a covering. So the Passover was based off of blood. And then we read when the priest would bring you forward in order to declare you cleansed, then he would sprinkle blood. Can you imagine standing there and let this priest just fling blood all over you? Now, did the flinging of blood save you? No. It is a type. It is a, a picture to show that you were covered by that blood within that. And so we think about this. It is the, the ability to understand that God gives us life. Within this. As we go on, within this, 23 on, he says this. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies, note copies, of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these things, and the heavenly things themselves are better sacrifices. For Jesus didn't enter into the holy place made with hands, but a mere copy of the true one into heaven itself, and now appears in the presence for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as a high priest enters the holy place year by year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been made manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch it is appointed for men to die once, and after this judgment, so Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin so that those eagerly await for him. It's been a point of man once to die, then judgment. So the sinner will die and then be judged. 
Now get this. If the sinner dies and is judged, it's appointed a man once to die and then judgment. But Jesus dies in your place, then you're already dead. And Jesus stands affirmed, resurrected, and so you were already resurrected. You will not die and then be judged. Why? Because Jesus already did. He died for you within this. These are, these are templates and, and copies. And if it not, was not so, the text says that Jesus would have had to die multiple times, wouldn't he? If it was under the Old Covenant, he would have to die every year. But we should not try to crucify Christ afresh. We should accept the fact that when he died, it was enough. Why? Because he said it's enough. On the cross, you remember his last words. It is what? Finished. To tell us die. Paid in full. So if you are a Christ follower and you have considered yourself dead in Christ, as Romans 6 says, and alive in Christ, as Romans 6 says, through baptism you identify that way, don't try to crucify Christ afresh for sins that he already died for. You're, you're free, and don't return to an old system. But there has to be a judgment for sin, and we all have to answer for that. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus, having paid the penalty for our sin, entered into that holy place. And if your life is in him, then you will also enter into that holy place that is there. Lastly, in 10, 1 through 18, says this. For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifice, which they offer continually year after year, make perfect those who draw near to them. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to offer it because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer having a consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. But a body you've prepared for me in the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written to do your will, O God. And after saying the above, sacrifices and offerings and the whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for your sin, have I not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which were offered according to law. And then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He, being Jesus, takes away the first, the covenant, in order to establish the second New Testament covenant. And by this, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering uh, time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But he, being Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool at his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I have made with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on. 
upon their hearts and on their minds and write them. And he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, wherever there's forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering of sin. The argument of the writer, quoting Old Testament, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, he says, The sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears have you opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book written. I delight to do your will. God's will was that Jesus would come, pay that penalty. He's writing to these guys saying, Don't go back. Don't go back to the old covenant. Because the new covenant is so much better. The old covenant was written on stone. Jesus says, the writer writes this quoting David, and he says, if you wanted sacrifice continually, you wouldn't have sent Jesus. But what does he want? Obedience. And obedience in his heart. He wants to be cleansed. And, And within that cleansing comes the new hope. What also is quoted is Psalm 110, 102. It says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. The Lord will stretch forth a strong scepter from Zion and rule in the midst of your enemies. The Aaronic priesthood would never hold to that. He's Melchizedek. Jesus is the king priest. He is the priest that sits on the throne as king. And within this whole message that, that he is working through, He says, the old covenant has to go away and the new covenant I'm going to give to you. So why does the New Testament church not sacrifice like the law tells us to? Because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin and the sacrifice is no longer necessary because Jesus made that sacrifice. Why is it that we we are not adhering to all of the Levitical laws and all of the things that are there. Because the laws were there to point to us that we could not be perfect and we needed a Savior. But having been given that Savior and that forgiveness, God no longer writes His law on stone, but He writes it where? In our hearts, within this. We think about the, this, this concept here, and I want to end with this quote that he's quoting out of, Isaiah, out of Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34, he says this, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it, and I will be their God. They will be my people, and they will not teach again every man his, his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, and I will remember it no more. What is God's greatest desire? Man's greatest need. God's greatest desire is to know you. Man's greatest need is to know God. And everything in the Old Covenant was to bring us into a new covenant relationship to know God, and that's what we celebrate. Well, let's pray. God, I thank you that you give to us a hope and a future in this, this, this new covenant. God, I would pray even now that that even as people are here, um, hearing your word or watching online, that they would realize that, Jesus, you paid the price for all of their sin. And having paid that price, we trust in you for all things. Lord, I know that, that so many times Satan will come in and bring us a reminder of our sin and guilt. 
But when that happens, may we stand firm, remind them of the cross that our sins are paid for, and remind them that our Savior said it's finished, and remind him that our King sits on the throne in heaven. And may we celebrate that. God, we thank you for all that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys might notice we're having a problem with the projector, so if you'd like the lyrics for this next song, the TV in the balcony up there has them. So turn around and sing with us. we thank you that you've given us the eternal promise to know that you're going to come and you're going to take us home. But we're already there. God, we have guaranteed eternal life through you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I know not everybody has that assurance. Not everybody has that hope. And maybe tonight Satan has got you so spun up about your sin that you don't feel saved. Don't listen to the lies. Understand that Jesus paid that price. And it's out of relationship that he loves you and cares for you. But if you've never asked for that forgiveness of sin, if you've never asked and received that, that sacrifice gift that he's given to you, then pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, my sin is always before me. Satan always reminds me and I'm in bondage. Please forgive me. Let me know your presence and your power in my heart. 
I surrender my life to you. Fill me with me, your spirit, that I might know you. And we thank you in all this. And all God's people said, amen and praise Jesus. Have a blessed night. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.